0: We are recording. And we are recording back again for yet another episode of 27 Speaks. So this week we thought it would be interesting to do something a little different, not talk about politics or housing or any of that stuff and, and go into a more emotional level. So with that mysterious introduction, I'll uh, tell you who's here. So with us today is Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe.
2: Hey, Annette, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News
0: Group. And I'm Annette Hinkle. I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us is a lovely Michelle Trowering. Hi, Michelle.
3: Hi, Annette. I'm Michelle Trowering, and
0: I'm the features editor of the Express News Group. And we also have a special guest. This is an interview subject that Michelle spoke to recently. And this is Susan Stout, who's joining us. Hi, Susan.
3: Hi. Hello, I'm Susan Stout. I am an end-of-life doula living here in East Hampton ooh yeah <laughs>
0: interesting right so, so this was joe's this was funny because joe sent out an email it's like we need to do a podcast about the end of life duelist. so i'm like yeah, yes.
3: yeah. thank Great. you joe thank you joe i think
2: it's a fascinating i, I mean maybe it's just because i'm getting older but <laughs> oh, the, dear. Topic of, the topic of death to yeah. me is is a fascinating one and when michelle wrote about um what you do Um, I think it's a a really essential um, thing that it's, it's an essential resource to have out there for, for, you know, and I'm, I'm intrigued because um, really all of us have to face this and some people have to face it a little more imminently than others and, and have sort of what I would say is an opportunity to, to come to terms with it. You know, for some of us, um, we all know it's it's lurking out there for us at some point, but um, for some people it's it's much more in focus. And I think to have somebody to help guide you through that. I mean, tell us. I, I want I want you to talk a little bit about what you do.
3: Um. Thank you. Well, and and Joe, I love I love everything that you said, and I would like to just start off if. If anybody else feels like Joe and is interested in talking about this topic, we are holding our first death cafe on March 18th at the Bridgehampton uh, Unitarian Universalist Church. So that is a safe place for people to come and speak about anything around the subject of death, dying, end of life. It's an agenda-free discussion. And it's exactly, Joe, for people like you, who just have maybe some curiosity and are trying to bring this word and this subject back into the normal world where it always used to live.
2: Is it weird that I was a little excited to hear about the death cafe? No. That, I... seems, that seems to me like it'd be kind of an interesting place to go and have and, that conversation. You know
0: what intrigues me is that I've actually... Um, you know, it's, I, I had some, I had a friend when I lived back in um, in Hoboken, New Jersey, who was from Jersey city and her parents owned funeral homes. And she was saying that before night, the 1918 flu epidemic, people normally process the bodies at home. Sorry. I'm just choking. <laughs> I'll be right there. <laughs> That's right. I'm on my way. <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was intriguing. The whole idea that before like the flu epidemic, people just dealt when people died and it was a very hands-on family kind of activity, but then the, just the funeral industry sort of outsourced all that and people have really gotten out of touch with how to go through this process. Does that, does that seem accurate? Yes. I think you're,
3: I think you're spot on. It, it really was not that long ago that, you know, we, we lived in extended family situations, right? We had many generations under one roof. And so often you know the grandparents would be dying in the in the same house where you were you maybe just gave birth to a child so it was just normal the cycle of life the beginning and the end was just part of living your life every day and people would talk about it children were included in it there were home funerals so nobody was afraid of the body, no one was afraid of the whole idea of death, it was just something that happened in the course of your life. And, as a result of partially that flu epidemic, and, um, you know, it's 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 interesting, embalming came out of the Civil War, because we had all of these people dying in the North or the South, and then they had to be transported back and forth and. It was not always a pleasant activity for anybody so once embalming started then the whole idea of like oh you know we can we can actually preserve the body and we can have a funeral we can have these you know sort of outsourced ways of of saying goodbye these services and then that kind of morphed more into the funeral industry that we know today which is beautiful and wonderful and it's great, but the downside, I would say, is that it happens so quickly. So one minute, if you're lucky enough to be at home with your loved one, then our education tells us we immediately call the funeral director and they come and respectfully do their job. But it, it might happen too quickly for most of us because we don't. And then the next time we see the person, it's either, you know, possibly cremated remains, or it's it's an open casket service somewhere, and then you're kind of, there's this disconnect between, wait a minute, that's that's not really what, you know, my loved one looked like, and they make everybody look so beautiful, and that also adds to this sort of disconnect about death, because when our bodies die, it's not, it's not pretty. I mean, we just, it's generally, you know, we don't have blush and our hair is not perfectly combed. But that's also just part of the normal aspect of when your body is is done. And we get shielded from all of that. and then and then we literally are distanced from it, right? Um, and so it just perpetuates this idea of we don't know how to do this. and death is something to be outsourced and sanitized and taken out of our hands when, in fact, we need to bring it back into our hands. We need to bring it back into our homes. We need to be less afraid of this process because it is happening. Death continues to have a 100% success rate. It is probably the only thing that does, right? Except for the sun coming up every day and the sun going down you know, at the end of the day. And so one of the things that end of life doulas do is is, is just help educate our communities and help us to get ready. Because if we can start thinking about it now, on a day when the sun is shining and we're feeling pretty good and we can dip our toes into the pond slowly as opposed to having it thrust upon us.
2: Now, you you work with people who are terminally ill um, or people who are who are facing death in a more uh, urgent sense. Mm-hmm. I wonder, how do you help people get over the fear? Uh, because I, I would think yeah. that that's the 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 biggest emotion that people tend to have. And I mean, I mean tell me, you tell me, I, I, I would think most people are are really afraid and terrified of of it because we we don't know and and that unknowing is is part of what makes it such a challenge to face death
3: oh absolutely absolutely and and there there's so many things that people are afraid of first of all um but it's also you finally reach this place where you can't deny this is happening anymore and that's that is terrifying as well because we we live most of our lives pretending it's not going to happen um and so yeah it depends for some people it's it's fear that they will be in pain for some people it is fear of what comes next have they made have they um reconciled themselves with whatever spiritual practice that they have are they feeling like they've left a lot of relationships unmended or untended and have they left a burden for their loved ones because they spent so much time not thinking about this, that now it's too late and they, they can't get their affairs in order. They can't say the things that they wanted to say. They can't, um, have a conversation, you know, or many conversations perhaps with some sort of a spiritual advisor. So, so part of it is getting to, if I, if, if I have a chance to speak to the person who is facing end of life earlier, then these are that's one of the first questions that I would ask is how are you feeling about this? What what are what are your worries? What is and and sometimes people just want to be able to say it out loud. And speaking those words out loud can reduce the fear.
0: And sometimes it's probably easier for them to say those words to you if their own family members are not ready to go there.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a hard, it's a it is a difficult thing to talk to your loved one because we don't want to let go of the people that we love. Um, and so I'm kind of a neutral presence who loves to talk about all of these things and can hold space for the family and can can then in turn perhaps educate the family in a way that that they might be able to hear the words coming from me as opposed to say their spouse. Um, so sometimes it's being a little bit of a middleman to a degree, yeah, Susan. what is it like for you to have those conversations with the terminally ill for them to be you know talking about these deepest fears? How is that for you on a human level i I am, i you know as as I mentioned Michelle, when we talk I am so curious and and I really um. I I really want to know because because I've learned so much there was there was someone who was literally afraid that no one would take care of their their pet because nobody in particular liked this little yappy dog and she was worried like what was going to happen but she was afraid to ask anybody because she was afraid they would say this dog is going right to the shelter the second you're out of here and so I you know we talked about that and then i did kind of talk to the family a little bit and you know we managed to find somebody who would take this dog for her and that that was tremendous for her but and that was that was her biggest worry she was pretty much okay with everything else um i would say for people who are afraid of pain which is very common um sometimes you cannot avoid that but often you can and often that's where um, an organization like hospice can come in or some other kind of palliative care because they are all about making your final days be as good as they can possibly be.
2: I actually wanted to clarify that too, Susan, you're, you're not a hospice. You're, you're not a medical professional. That's not what you do,
3: right? No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And and end of life TULA is a non-medical, I can't give you an aspirin. I can hold your hand, I can massage your feet, I can massage your temples, but it's a completely non-medical thing that I do, but I can work with hospice. And, and, and what I have is generally more time because if somebody, if somebody brings hospice into their care plan, um, hospice is so amazing, but they can only be there really, you know, a number of hours a week. And that's really that's 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 great and they do so much in the time that they have but you know there're the other say 20 hours in the day that you have a caregiver generally who is taking care of somebody so i can help i can do caregiver respite i can sit with with the person and be with them if somebody needs a break um i can i can be a companion i can advocate for them i can help educate them i can help you know, I mean, one of the things that hospice does really well too, is they help educate the family when you are approaching end of life. Like, like if the person is home, this is what you will likely see. So don't be afraid. This is, these are the things, but I don't know about you, but that's a conversation. I needed to hear that many, many, many times when I was facing it myself. So that's something that I can do for people is I can sit down and we can talk about you know, these are the stages, this is what you might see, this is what it might look like, and reassure them that it's natural, it's normal, it's not painful, it's not frightening for the person going through them.
2: That was another part of the story that I thought was really interesting is how you came to this. Um, you you mentioned it just a moment ago that you you went through this yourself with with your father, right? And that's really what got you interested in, in becoming an, an end-of-life doula
3: that 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 was definitely I I have been with other people before who who were dying and felt remarkably comfortable in that space what the pandemic did and and losing my dad was really make me understand how how badly we do death in this culture we are a death-denying country that we just don't want to hear about it um and so There was just so much bad death happening and so much, so many people who, who didn't get what they deserved, both the dying and the family members and loved ones. And, and I really thought that this, this could be different and I wasn't able to do it for my own dad, but I also, you know, as I mentioned, I had started this whole series of conversations with him a couple months before he died, which were transformative for me. It made all the difference. So even though I couldn't be with him when he finally died, I, I know to this day that he felt loved. He felt respected. He, he, he knew what his legacy was because my entire family, we had all made sure that he knew that. And so, boy, if I, if I do nothing else with this work, I want to have t-shirts and billboards that say, say it now and say it a lot because it's great, right? How great is it to tell people that you love them? How great is it to share stories? How great is it to remind the people in our lives how meaningful they are to us? And it feels only, it just gets better the more you get to say it. And a lot of people think that they have a lot of time and, and, you know, I have regrets about people I wish I had said that to before they died. Um, And so, I think that that is a, a tremendous gift for everybody is to, is to know your place in the world, right? To know, to know who you are and to know that you will be missed.
1: Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel be well advised. suffolklaw.com
0: 27 speaks is brought to you by Sack Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sack Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles, very easy process they handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit southamptonsagharborbooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. I'm really curious how, how, when you join a client, are you with them like 24 hours during a certain p- time period, or do you set out a few hours a week? Cause I, I just, you know, with hospice, you seems like once they come in, they're pretty much there because it's the end is usually fairly, fairly soon. But I'm just wondering about the time frame. you know, how soon are you often brought in and do you, do you spend, you know, X amount of hours a day with a client? Will you be there all the time? Were you there, you know, nine to five, just wondering how the timing is structured?
3: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it, it, it really depends. I mean, I, my last, my last client, they brought me in as soon as she received her, her terminal diagnosis, she wanted an end of life doula to help her navigate this. And so I, we started on zoom and then I would go, I would, I was going to see them about once or twice a month in person and talking to them. And then in between emailing and sending, one of the things I like to do is just really send people uh, resources. So um, it can be YouTube videos about a certain subject or it can be something humorous if I think that's what they need or, um, you know, caring resources. Like there's a wonderful group called The Caring Bridge and it's an online incredible, it's it's everything from setting up meals and chores and posting about somebody's you know somebody's progress and um so so it, yeah it really depends on how much they want mostly she just really wanted to be able to talk about what was happening to her and she wanted me to help uh, talk to her family especially her children about what was because she it was very difficult for her to say it so I could. In a way, be her mouthpiece, um, and so that that gave her a lot of comfort knowing that that her wishes were being um, put out there to her family, but she she wasn't able to do it herself. And then towards the end, yeah, would just you know sit by her bedside for an hour or so. It really it really depends. Like she had she had a great care care group looking after her. Um, there are other people who maybe don't have family or close friends who might need me more often so so it really it really depends on what the needs of the family and the and and the person who is facing end of life what they want to need
2: i was curious susan it, your care is is that considered care is it covered by insurance or how do you get involved i mean where when are you brought in i'm curious about all the just the Boring logistics of how <laughs> how you get an end of life doula into a situation, and and how how is that that cost covered, and 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 all that is it is it sort of like a private consultant kind of a situation, or it's
3: it yeah, I mean essentially, I I I, I guess I would be a, a private consultant or a private contractor. So so there 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 are fees for what I do. I, I break it out. I can work with people. Just on their advanced care planning documents, like advanced directives and healthcare proxies. So that's one thing I can sit with people and do. And then generally for the for the doula work, I I have a list of things that I I can bring that I can physically do. Um, you know, I can I can sit with someone, I can, I can read to them, I can accompany them to appointments, I can take help them take care of their pets. Um, but it's this service is not yet covered by insurance and which is good and bad because on the one hand, um, almost every doula that I've met, we all work on a sliding scale. Like we all wanna be able to say yes to everybody. So so it's wonderful when people can pay the rates that I charge and I always thank them and say, thank you so much because this helps me work with people who just don't have that. Um, And so, because i never want to say no to anybody and so it is something that is you know that that people would pay it out of pocket um or or you know i'm always i'm always open to conversation about about it i i i don't want anybody to feel like oh my gosh i really would like i would really like susan to sit with me for a couple of hours i would never say no to anybody
2: you're sort of like in in between a a a medical professional and a spiritual professional like like somebody it's you're sort of in between those two areas. And um, that's a tough gray zone to be in, I would think just, you know, for the logistics of it.
3: Well, it's a, it's a lot of bridges, right? So, so I'm a bridge to the hospice care because I can work with the, the hospice nurses and the social workers and the, you know, even the volunteers Um, I can I can sit with you in your doctor's office and and help you have crafted questions ahead of time and make sure that that your doctor does not leave the room until all of your questions are answered. Um, So advocacy can be a big part of it because it's 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 really hard to be to maintain your dignity when you're undergoing a a you know either end of life frailty or I mean I'm sure you all know people who've just been you know just had these terrible diseases which rob you of your dignity so one of the things I like to do is help you reclaim that help you find your voice and keep your voice make sure that you're heard in all of the aspects like in all of your medical appointments with your family with your friends and that you can take some control back over this thing that's happening to you because control is generally the first thing that you feel goes out the window right because you're you become part of this whole um chain of medical appointments and and doctor's appointments and medications and this testing and that testing and, and these different therapies and it's easy just to get swept away into that but i can i i really advocate for people to try to take back as much control as they
0: can mm-hmm. so i know that that uh, a lot of your work is to really sort of provide comfort for the patient who is facing end of life but i'm curious how the family members and, and friends of the patient react and how maybe you're able to help them in ways they didn't expect. They, you know, they probably think that you're there for the patient, but I'm sure that there's a lot of things that they find that they get out of having you there.
3: Oh, I, I, I believe so. Yes. I mean, so, so for, for example, if I, when I get brought in Um, One of the first questions I will ask is, you know, where, where would you like your final weeks and days to be? And pretty much everybody says at home. That's, that's ultimately where we would all like to be. Um, But it's harder than it seems. And so in order to keep you at home, we sort of make a plan going backwards to like, these are the steps to keep you at home. And so that involves the family, that involves the friends, that can involve everybody. So I just help point things out to everybody um another thing that I like to do is 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 I'll find out like who's your bossiest friend and like that's (laughs) the person who's going to be in charge of of when people come to you and say what can I do how can I help which is is a lovely thing to do but we then inadvertently add another burden on top of the people who are already just suffering underneath this burden so that's where your bossy friend comes because they're in charge of telling everybody you're going to bring the meals you're going to walk the dog you're going to take them to this appointment you're going to get the mail you're going to do this you're going to do that and we love that right i mean we love being able to do something and given a task and so so i can you know i can help that bossy friend to really wants to solve and and cure you of your cancer but can't but at least they feel like they're doing something um and that's a really powerful thing for people in your care circle to feel hi this is michael wright i'm a reporter for the southampton press the east hampton press the sag harbor express and 27 east.com I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27east.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much.
2: I thought Michelle did a great job in, in telling the story of breaking down that there's there's really two aspects to this. You you have made clear that you really help with the utilitarian side of end of life. There's a lot of fears and questions about what am I leaving behind and what, you know, all of that. And and just having somebody to help coordinate that, I think probably is an immense help to people in that circumstance. But then there's also this ex- existential side of it and, and trying to deal with the questions about death itself. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I don't think it's fair to do that, to ask you about your views about what is death and what happens after after life ends, but I'm curious, how do you manage your own views when you're talking with people who have these concerns and these fears? How do you, how do you, I imagine you have to kind of keep your own feelings about the subject away a little Mm -hmm. bit and let them tell you what they believe and, and sort of work with their belief system. Is that fair? Is that how you approach it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of, one of the things that an end of life duel is, is completely judgmental. So, so my role is not to walk in and tell you how to die and tell you what you need and tell you like, Oh, you need to bring in the chaplain and you need to have prayers said for you and you need this and you need that. Um, because I, I think that like everything is valid, like whatever, whatever will bring you comfort and whoever will will bring you comfort it's all that's that's what's important I am there for you so so if I am sitting with someone and 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 if there's a part of me that's like oh my this just doesn't sound right to me I would never say that I would never ever say that and 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 because ultimately I don't know you know maybe this person is has it right and maybe what I I think and believe is wrong and and so, yeah, I just I want people. I will I will do whatever I can to bring, help bring them the comfort that everybody needs. And sometimes it is very unique. Sometimes it's the case of a dog. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I love it when I just get to just jump in with like candles and and essential oils and saging the room and chanting and doing all of that. Like I'm I'm all in on that too. If that's what somebody wants. I will also sit and read passages from the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or whatever, if that's what you want. It's like, I am, I am there to serve you, not to serve my own interests or, you know, have you convert to something on your bedside. That would be awful. Yeah. And I thought what was also so interesting is this sense of empowerment that you give people, you know, I didn't typically think about that of, you know, having that choice of do I want my pets here? Do I want poetry read to me? Do I want to listen to music? Do I want candles? And these are all things that came up in our conversation together. And to be able to like, you know, dictate that I thought that that was like, wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah, right. I mean, imagine, like this space, your perfect space that you would like to be in. Right, I mean, it's and and it's 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 achievable because generally it's not it's not anything too outrageous. Or if it is outrageous, start planning for it now. Right, like get those velvet curtains that you want hanging on the window, or or you know that gold lamé couch that you'd like to be draped on. Um, yeah, start you know starting gathering gathering those things. But it's it's also part of of, of someone like taking that control where you can. And sometimes it's just teeny tiny. They seem like teeny tiny things, but they can be tremendous for the person who is, is facing what they're facing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think, I think about that a lot. I'm like, and it changes some days. I know, you know, I want my bed to be by the ocean and I want, you know, one of those like beautiful, um scenes where the wind is blowing through the linen curtains. And you know, sometimes I want that. And other times I just want to be, you know, curled up on my bed with my dog and everybody I love just like, you know, hanging out. Yeah.
0: So can I ask about what the training was like when you went for your um death doula training, your end of life doula. I'm not sure what the appropriate phrasing oh,
3: is. You know, it's it's people use death doula, end of life doula. Death midwife, death walker. There are all
2: sorts of. It's interesting. There, you're you're hesitant to even say death doula. Like death is a bad word in some way. Like like we're we're afraid of the word death. No, no. (laughs) Listen, full disclosure. I sent Michelle a note um, before the article published and said, "Gotta ask: Is death doula an acceptable way to say this, or are we Mm -hmm. going to be um, insensitive in saying that?" And Michelle said, "No." Susan uses the terms interchangeably, yeah. but I'm just sort of fascinated that even the word death, oh, geez, we've got to be careful about even talking about death in, in those terms. It's it's a natural sort of, I think we all sort of have that.
3: Well, and, and that's why I generally lead with end-of-life doula because that's simply a more palatable phrase for most mm-hmm. people, but um, there are definitely other um, you know, other spaces where, where we're like, we're death doulas, like, it's just kind of fun to say that too, because, because it's like the word death is like, it's so terrifying, but it's like, like by saying I'm a death doula, I'm trying to just break apart all of this fear that we have around the word death, because it's just, it's just time to do that. Like, like words have power, but I think sometimes we, we, need to take power back over, over certain words. And I think the word death
0: is one that we need to reclaim our power over that word. Okay. So going back to my earlier question, as a death doula, how are you trained? Like, how do you train someone to do this? How did they train you? What did you learn that you didn't know?
3: Um, there, there are so many trainings out there right now. Um, which is, which is amazing. When I was first looking around, there was, I found maybe 10. Now there's probably like, like a hundred Um, from big organizations, there's an organization called Enelda, which is an international end of life doula association. They do trainings underneath their umbrella. Um, There are individuals who do training. Um, Mostly we are all sort of under one, what we call a scope of practice. So pretty much everybody, because we have to be careful and always lead with this is a non-medical profession, um, there there's a basic scope of practice that we all follow, which is it's non-medical, it's non-judgmental, it's family-centered support, it's holistic care, so mind, body, spirit, it's empowerment and education, and team players. So we can work with everybody from the medical team to like your bossy best friend. And so So pretty much all the trainings follow that scope of practice. And then within that, we learn things about um, self-care, you know, how to take care of ourselves when we are sitting with someone who is dying or we're witnessing something that is is truly painful to watch. and we talk about, there's some role playing. We talk about things like, you know, what is, what are, what are the stages of dying? What does that look like? What are some signs to look out for? How do we educate the family? How do we find resources for ourselves? Resources for, like local resources that we can refer to local families. Um, a lot of talk about just how do you enter the space and a lot of practice in being reminded that this is not about me i am the last person that this is about and how do you do that how do you be an active listener what are the sort of questions that you can ask to get people talking how do you how do you remind yourself that sometimes you it's just enough just to sit there and you don't have to say anything
2: did you have a background in this that that Sort of prepared you for this professionally. Were you a therapist
3: or anything like that? No, I I I was doing um pretty much making my living as an actor before I moved out here. Um, so that training has been great. Sure, I in 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 many ways, but it you know I feel like this is work that I've done like all of my life. I've done it before. It just. When I, when I first heard the word end of life doula years ago, I was like, huh? Like, you know how you hear something and your whole body perks up and it's like, what is, what is that? And then I assumed that it was something that like you had to be a nurse or you had to have some sort of medical background. And then years later I discovered it's not that, but I just feel like I've always been comfortable being that person walking towards the uncomfortable things that a lot of people are walking away from i've always felt comfortable sitting with the dying um i've been comfortable in hospitals and and i feel like now i just can be better at it like i feel like i have more skills and 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 things that i can offer because as i said to michelle you know especially when somebody receives like a life limiting diagnosis a terminal illness diagnosis generally what can happen is that everybody becomes experts in that disease and what are the therapies and and like what are the latest trends in this and that and they're so busy becoming experts in that which is which is great in i mean it's it's important for you to be super aware of what's happening but it's easy to forget about everything else and it's easy for the person who has the diagnosis to be just thought of as, as someone who is now dying. This is a person who like is a cancer patient. This is a person who has ALS. This is a person who has this or that. And I try to remind everybody that that no that's not just who this person is. They have this, but they are still your mom, your spouse, your your child, your best friend. And they will be continuing to live until they take that final breath. And that's how we should treat them. That's how they wanna be treated. And and not to say that there is not time for like all the sympathy and empathy and understanding. and, And sometimes we just need to cry and rage about it. Absolutely. But I think the person with the disease can get lost in the process of trying to cure the disease, fix the disease, you know, prolong the life of the person with the disease. And we forget that there is a whole human being behind the face of this diagnosis that needs to be tended to and cared for and listened to and respected yeah. and to help them thrive as long as they can. And, and I have to say, you know, that's one of the things that hospice does too, is that a lot of people think, Oh, hospice is, is, is you're giving up. You're essentially being like, nope, I'm done. I'm just going to crawl into bed and, and bring in hospice and die. And it's like, no, no, no. Hospice is all about improving your quality of life as much as you have. So they, like like hospice and doulas, we often get brought in too late because people perceive as as it's giving up. When in fact, we are there to prolong and empower you in your, in your days because, you know, even though doctors sort of, you know, kind of by law have to say a terminal diagnosis means you have six months or less to live. I mean, how many people do you all know who's like, oh yeah, I'll show you what six months look like. And like three years later, there's still, like that happened with my father-in-law. Like he was diagnosed with this terrible disease. And he was like, one year? Yeah, I'll show you one year. You know, five years later, he's still he was still around. So, so you know, we get into this this mindset of oh, six months that nobody can possibly know how much time somebody has, but but for reasons that make sense to somebody somewhere, that was the the time frame that was given, and so so you know. And, we then immediately get defeated, right? It's like, oh, six months, what can I do in six months? And it's like, no, 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 it doesn't have to be six months. It can be as much time as you have, but we could possibly make that time longer by helping you live your best life while you can.
2: Do you like having the existential conversations uh, about death? And I imagine that's something that's gonna happen at the uh, the death cafe. Uh, people will get together to have just the sort of general conversations about death and and some of the bigger existential questions. Do you like engaging in that or is that is that difficult for you to do because of your what you're doing on a day-to-day basis with individual people?
3: Oh, I love those are the best conversations. They're great conversations because it's it like it's everybody has their own idea and thought. And I learned so much about about humanity that way. I mean, I, I feel like I've learned and grown so much um, like even even in the past year, by just listening to people, their thoughts and it it makes me think of new things. and it it helps me continue to be non-judgmental by hearing so many different thoughts, so many different um, so many different perspectives. Yeah, I think they're endlessly fascinating conversations.
2: And I want to throw out something and I'm going to throw it out to you and to Michelle and Annette, because I'm really curious about it just to get, I've, I've wanted to have an intelligent conversation about this with somebody. So here we go. I'm reading a book by uh, a woman named Megan O'Giebling, O'Giebling, and it's called God, human, animal, machine. And it's about the connection of, of technology and human consciousness and it starts to raise these philosophical questions about do we think that it's feasible that sometime in the next couple of decades, there'll be computing power available where we may be able to upload a human consciousness into a digital environment? And and is that possible? Can you do that? Can you, can will will sometime in the next hundred years, can human beings continue to exist indefinitely as digital creatures is there a way to capture whatever that inherent spark is that is our life in a digital format so that you know essentially right now there is no computer on earth that has the computing power of the human brain but we're getting there and we may get there
0: soon so this is kind of like putting your entire album collection on your hard drive.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Got it. Let's see
2: where you're going with this. <laughs> and, and the question is, if you can upload everything in your brain to a digital format into a hard drive, does your consciousness go with it in some way? Do you exist? In a digital state, and this has been a science fiction question for a long time, but there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophers out there that are talking about this right now, um, because we are entering a period of time where that may actually be technically technologically possible. And I'm just fascinated by that. I I have no idea. I I, that may make me sound like a crackpot. Don't don't (laughs) understand. I don't know
0: about I don't know that I buy that. But it's just a
2: fascinating thing to think
0: about. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like, did you see that weird, there was a thing, I think I saw it on 60 Minutes. I think it was a Holocaust museum where before a lot of Holocaust survivors died, they did extensive interviews with them with cameras all the way around them. And they asked them every question they could have could think of, like hundreds and hundreds of questions. And now they have these holograms of these people who are, have long since died at this museum and they have direct conversations with like school children who ask them, you know, where did you live? What did you do? What was it like? And they have answers for everything. And these people oh, wow. have since st- it's great. It's that's yeah. amazing. Oh my it's, gosh. Yeah. It's really, yeah. Crazy.
2: And I'm thinking too about the conversations lately about AI.
0: Right. And, right.
2: and whether or not the conversations we're having with AI, they start to take on a personality and that's kind of an interesting thing too, but um I, I, this this connection of of trying to supersede death with technology isn't new that's something that's been around for a long time but it's fascinating to me because we're we're getting to the point where the the rubber's going to hit the road here about whether or not that's a feasible option yes. for us movies yes forward. Is it,
0: so what do you think about ai and death yeah <laughs> <not>. <laughs> no pressure Susan. <laughs> Well,
3: it, you know, it makes me, it makes me ask the question. I think it, I think it depends on what do you think consciousness is and can that be captured in, in, in AI? And, and I don't know, would it be like trapping lightning bugs in a jar? Like, would you have to grab it as before it's leaving your body somehow and like grab it and stick it in something? Um, And if you did, would it be content to stay there? I don't know.
2: Um, all great. I mean, this is the, it opens up a whole universe of really fascinating um, questions that just pop, pop up. It's, it's all intertwined with this unknowing that we have about death. And, yeah. and that's why I find the subject fascinating. I just think it's a really, once you get over the, 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 the terror <laughs> of, of thinking and talking about end of life, it's just a fascinating conversation to have about what it means and and you know what some of these philosophical questions that pop up. Um, have you gotten insights from some of the people that you've you've dealt that you took away that 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 sort of stuck with you?
3: Well, I I have to say I I've been exploring this whole idea of um, the near death experience, and I was I was going to say you might enjoy Joe. There's there's a a documentary on Netflix that is just all about people who have had these end of life encounters. And it's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and yeah, I don't, I, I I don't know. I haven't met personally anybody who, who has come back, but there, there's literally at, um, in Charlottesville, Virginia, there, there is a center for, I think it's the, it's the perpetual life studies I think is what it's called and they study a lot of these end of life or or near-death experiences and it's it's really fascinating and it does make me think a lot about like what is it exactly that leaves your body um what is what is it that and 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 where where does it go and and do you have a soul and a spirit and do they do something different and um I mean I've I personally believe that that this this beautiful body that we all have will come to an end at some point and it's done its work. Um, I also want to give a shout out to there's so many wonderful green, more eco-friendly things to do with your body after you're done with it, aside from traditional cremation or traditional burial. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I will say I've never, I've I have, I have not and I haven't sat with, you know hundreds of people but but the people that I have seen actively transition I've never seen anybody look terrified or look horrified or try to claw mm. their way back um not to say that I have no idea what's happening inside but people generally tend to look very peaceful and I know the 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 physical act of dying is really hard work and and your body is doing so much. And so, but it's very peaceful and it's not a painful process for your body to to physically die. Disease notwithstanding. But um people seem generally at peace. And so I don't know. I, I I'm pretty curious myself as to what, what comes next. Um and yeah. Um, if I, if I get a chance to come back, I'll, I'll share with you what I, what I found out.
2: <laughs> I'll meet you at the death cafe. <laughs> yes. We can have this, com- yes, yes. we can have this conversation. Yes, there. Joe, please yeah. come
0: to the death cafe and throw that into the discussion. Are you going to go, Joe? You should go. So can you, Susan, can you remind us exactly when it is and the time? Yes, it is
3: going to be on Saturday, March 18th at 4 p.m., at the bridgehampton unitarian universalist congregation that's on the bridgehampton turnpike
2: that's the first one right but you're hoping to have more right
3: well i'm i'm hoping to make it a monthly event um but we're going to try that one and and just see what happens but yeah i and and they're very keen on it reverend johnson over there was when i mentioned death i did a Talk over there a few weeks ago about advanced directives, and I mentioned death cafe to her, and she was like, "Yes, let's do a death cafe," and I was like, "Oh, thank you so much." You're gonna love it, Joe. I'll
0: be so, there. Uh, I think yeah. it's great. I yeah. think it's a great idea. And then we're gonna do like a movie night where we watch the Netflix show too. So.
3: Yeah. Oh, it's it's Beth. There was a woman. Oh my god. She was she was dead for like 30 minutes in the middle of Chile like she it was like the most incredible story and she she fully came back and she she's a she's a surgeon she's I think a spine surgeon and like there's no way she should have recovered from being clinically dead for 30 plus minutes I mean there's just it shouldn't have happened but it did and she's giving this interview and I was just like oh
0: there's so much we don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this was a, a good thing or not, but when my mother died, we all looked up and waved because we always heard that you go above. So hopefully Yeah. You yeah. And you want to
3: maybe leave a window open a little bit because in some cultures, you know, you need, but, but yeah, that's why it's so important. It's like, stay in the room, be there for as long as you can, because something, sometimes things, beautiful things happen and you feel things or, you know, you just shouldn't Rush out. We all we all need that time with our
0: loved ones. That's interesting. Wow, fascinating. All right, I think we think we did pretty well on this topic. See, it's an interesting topic. I told you. No, I knew it would be. We just got (laughs) to get over the fear. I lead ghost tours of Sack Harbor. You don't think I'm into this?
2: (laughs) I still say that a defining moment for me was when I was a kid and I saw The Wizard of Oz, and the scene in The Wizard of Oz. Where the witch turns the, the, uh, what am I trying to say?
0: Oh, the hourglass.
2: Hourglass. Okay. No, the hourglass yes. over. It yeah. says, you have this long to live. And the sand's running out. And she, that was, that stuck with me. Cause it was the first time as a child that I got mortality. Mm-hmm. That was, that yeah. was the moment that scene scared the hell out of me. Isn't that interesting? because it it was the first time i really got the idea of mortality was from that scene in that movie um and and that's always stuck with me and and maybe that's why i have sort of a curiosity of the subject i've just always been fascinated by the subject so
0: i guess yeah we should go to that let's go to yes come come to that there will be cake (laughs) cake afterlife good
2: (laughs) (laughs) susan little piece of advice lead with the cake don't don't lead with the death lead with the cake
3: i wrote up the announcement yesterday to send over to the church and I was like and there will be cake
0: <laughs> i just picture somebody standing up and going the salmon moose remember that <laughs> 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 recording stopped
1: 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com
0: Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude, Flute Music, is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SacHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.